Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to The Bullins Boardroom in association with the Fitzrovia Bell London and fanscapes.co.uk with Ben Winstanley, Jack Kemp and Paul the Esk with boardroom guest Chris Nicholson, and as always, your host, Mick Kemp. Everton's stance on regulation and governance. The loss of finance from European football. And transfer spend this summer. And welcome to the first ever Bullins Boardroom with me, Mick Kemp, Ben Winstanley, Jack Kemp, Paul the Esk, and our boardroom guest this evening is Chris Nicholson. Paul, we're going to start on Everton's standpoint on, on compliance and legislation this evening. Carlo Ancelotti has almost laughed in the face of FFP in the media recently, which then leads to suggestions that Everton are going to maybe be spending big this summer. So, so where do Everton stand in line with FFP at the moment? Okay. Um, well, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting me onto the onto your, f- your first episode of the Bullens Boardroom. I- I'm delighted to be here, um, and I think one of the things that attracts me about speaking on 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 your platform is probably speak to a slightly different audience than I do on Everton Business Matters, which ten- I think it tends to be an older audience. So, um, I, th- I think it's great to get the opportunity to talk to possibly what are more typical uh, football fans. So th- there's a Slight element of confusion, partly driven by the media in terms of FFP and, and, and different regulations. 
FFP are the regulations that exist uh, within UEFA, and actually they're the regulations, confusingly, that exist within the Championship. But that doesn't doesn't and shouldn't concern us, one would hope. So UEFA have FFP regulations, and basically they say that you can't lose more than 30 million euros in any one three-year three-year period. The Premier League has a slightly different set of regulations, and that says, and it's called profitability and sustainability, and that says that you can't lose more than 105 million pound uh, over th- over over any three-year period. And the situation that we've got at the moment is because the Premier League don't appear to be punishing the six in in any uh, sort of stringent manner manner. The club, which actually was worried about um, whether or not we would sort of fit in under that 105 million loss over three years, are now taking the view: you can't punish us. You can't punish us if you, if you don't punish them. Uh, and it seems unlikely that them, the six, are going to be punished in a, a meaningful way. I mean, they'll they'll probably get financial penalties and perhaps uh, points deductions, which may be suspended on the basis of if you behave well, then nothing will happen. And if you don't behave well, they will come in. So I think Everton have become a little bit more relaxed about uh, the position that they find themselves in as a result of the Super League. Whether that means that we're going to spend more money than we might have done otherwise in the summer, I think is a a different point because ultimately uh, regulation is one thing, but actually having the cash or having the ability to spend cash is an entirely different matter, uh, and we'll get. On, I think we're going to get onto that a little, a little bit later in, in the program. Um, but there's no doubt that the Super League has assisted Everton in, in the sense that it's di- it will have diverted attention away from uh, the Premier League, thinking that perhaps we were not going to get in under this 105 million pound rule. Um, when I say 105 million, that, that's not necessarily the losses that are shown in the accounts, because if you, if you look at the accounts, it's quite clear that we're going to go over 105 million over three years. There's a load of things that you can deduct from from, from the losses. So, for example, you can you can deduct all your expenditure in the academy, you can deduct any expenditure in the community, and you can uh, deduct any expenditure in for, for, for in the women's game. So. There are things that you can take out. You can take out some uh, costs in terms of the stadium and stuff. So it's it's the figure that's calculated is a, is a different figure from the figure that's shown in the accounts. Um, but having said that, it was it was and it probably still is touch and go whether we would have come in under on, underneath that one hundred and five million rule. Paul, I'm going to stay with you here. So coming out of this Super League, and, and thank goodness Everton were not involved in it, where where do Everton stand now in a cash position? Are we in a healthy position? Uh, I, I don't I don't don't believe for a second that we are. Um if you if you look back at the so the last accounts, the last time we get a picture that's provided by the club is the 30th of June last year. 30th of June last year, we had 50 odd million in the in the bank, which sounds great. Um, but we also had a big pile of external debt, £56 million of external debt that had to be repaid this year. We owed the Inland Revenue £40 million, and we owed 
a substantial amount on transfers that had happened previously that we were paying in, in installments. On top of that, the club continues to lose money on a weekly basis. So we're spending, we're spending more money in, in cash terms uh, on things like wages, on our general running costs. We're spending more than we're actually bringing in through the front door. COVID has had an impact on that, obviously, because obviously there's no match day revenue. But actually for Everton, match day revenue is not that important. It represents uh, about 8% of our turnover, which compared to the other larger clubs in the Premier League is a relatively insignificant amount. But the fact is, is that we continually spend more money and we have done for quite some time now. We continually spend more money than we bring in. This year, for example, I estimate that we will be spending three million pound a month more on wages and general expenses than the amount of money that we bring in through the front door. So it's a bit like a domestic budget. If your overheads are greater than your salary, your overdraft just gets bigger and bigger every month. And ultimately, you have to do something about it, which is normally, uh, in domestic cases, norm- normally you you reduce costs for a football club. Uh, the only way that you can reduce costs effectively is by selling players. Uh, and that has two, actually has th- um, three effects. It reduces your wages. It reduces uh, something that's called amortization. Amortization is the, is the cost that the, that the accounts carry over the period of the contract of a player. So if you, if you buy a, without getting too technical, if you buy a player for 20 million pounds, that twenty million pound cost doesn't appear in the accounts in, in one year. It will appear in equal amounts over the period of the contract. So, if it was a four year contract, the account, the the uh, profit and loss account would be charged five million pound a year whilst the player was here. So, you can reduce your costs by selling players, and that obviously brings money in if you get a fee for it. But it also reduces um, your costs in terms of wages and amortization. And ultimately, that's what Everton will have to do at some point. The reverse is true, of course, if we carry on spending money and buy and, and buying players. Now, Carlo has said that he wants three, three or four players. Um, every time you buy a player, that adds to your costs. If your costs are greater than your income, that means that your losses next year are going to be greater than your losses this year. Um, it's not... That's not particularly uh, complicated or, or difficult to understand. I mean, that's just just the nature of, the nature of business. So um, we're we're in we're in quite a tight position. Mashiri has put in a hundred million pound into into the club this year, uh, but despite him doing so, uh, our cash balance at the end of this year is going to be less than it was at the beginning of the year. So then the question becomes: Well, actually. If that is the case, and if we're indebted to a lender, which we are, um, how can we possibly afford to buy players? And as I say, the, well, actually, there's three ways that you can you you, you can do it. Mashiri um, can put more money into the club, which is the strategy that he's used in in in, in the past. Um, we can borrow more money from our bank. That's difficult because we're already borrowing quite a significant amount. And we also have a stadium that we need to um, to pay for. And the people that are going to lend us the money to build the stadium, you can bet your bottom dollar that they will not want us to be increasing our, 
our debts in terms of our our operating business. So that's unlikely to happen. And then the third way, as I say, is the players that you have on the books, their assets, and you can sell those assets to generate cash and to reduce your costs, which is effectively what I think we will have to do this summer. Chris, looking at the, the possibilities, you know, ju- just touching on what Paul's just said, going into the new stadium, Bramley Moor, it, it will create a, a level of concern, won't it, if we're borrowing off potential lenders before we're even in the ground? Yeah, I think what Paul's touching on there, I mean, there's probably two separate, there's two separate issues at play here. You've got the ground, which is a bit of a massive capital um, project that the, the club's undertaking, and you've got the operating business, and, and quite rightly... There will be concern from lenders regarding the ground and um, you know, the additional risks attached if we are sort of um, borrowing significant amounts from commercial banks in order to fund our operating activity. I think what we've seen with, like Mishiri previously touched on, he's put another 100 million in, and there's a recapitalization went on in February time, I believe, um, as we're transferring kind of debt that is outstanding to the owner into equity, so therefore permanent investment in the club. I imagine it will be that route they will pursue um, regarding summer transfer spend, either that or, as we've seen with deals with uh, related businesses such as Megafon, where there's any scope to expand sort of sponsorship activity in order to fund it. So, Paul, how, if, if Farhad Mashiri wants to almost simplify this and say he wants to give Everton a cash injection of £100 million, how is he going to go about that this summer? Okay, so, if you, if you ignore the regulations for a moment in terms of what our losses might be, I mean, he quite simply can invest £100 million into the club tomorrow and we, and we could spend it. I mean, there's no... Well, apart from the regulations, there's no reason why uh, you wouldn't want to do that. The problem in in doing that is that the the moment that you put the money into into the business and then spend that money on players, you're increasing your costs for for the following year. And if you haven't increased your income, then you're increasing your uh, losses for the following year. And that's where the problems come in, and that's where the regulations come in, uh, regardless of what I've just said about the Super League and stuff. Um, let's say, for example, let's say, for example, we wanted to buy three players um, and we wanted to buy three players that cost 20, let's keep it simple, 25 million pound each. And each of those players um, were paid a salary of 5 million pound a year, 100,000 um, pound a week. What, if we did that, what does that mean in terms of extra costs? Well, Let's say, again, keeping it very simple, that each of those uh, three players got a five-year contract. In accounting terms, each of those uh, players would cost the club £10 million a year for five years. Uh, And that would be £5 of amortisation costs and £5 of of wages. And and that would hit right against uh, the profit and loss account. So... In the case of it being three players at £10 million each, you're going to increase your losses by £30 million a year if you, if you do that. And, that, and, that, and that's the problem, uh, frankly, that we've faced for a couple of years now. Uh, and over the last couple of years, it has, it has been an issue whether or not we can actually uh, meet our sort of regulatory requ- requirements. 
Now, if the view is because of what's happened in the Super League that we don't need to bother about that because it would be very unjust to penalise us for something which is on a relative basis a minor offence versus what the other six have done. And then Mashiri might take the view, I've got £100 million sitting in an Alaman company that I'm not using at the moment and it would be better used uh, in Everton Football Club. And he, 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 he could do that. I mean, you know, that's, that's his, his decision. And he would then take, he would take the personal risk, obviously, of not getting that money back at some point in the future. And he would also take the regulatory risk as, as, as the shareholder that if we were penalized for it, obviously it would, it would impact the club. Um, my view is, and that's the sort of view that's been expressed by, um, the Athletic, for example, in the, in the article that they uh, produced in the last couple of days. My view is that, uh, he won't do that. He won't do that for, for two reasons. He won't want to um, add to our costs without increasing our income. And he won't want, uh, from his own perspective, to have to spend another £100 million when he knows that, assuming that the stadium goes ahead, he's got to find at least £100 million uh, to put into the stadium in, in a fairly short period of time. So bearing in mind that he's already put £450 million into the club and he's already spent about £135 million um, on, on, the, on the equity that he's bought, it's difficult to think that he's going to stick another £200 million into the club because he's now then getting on towards uh, three quarters of a billion pound. Mm. And whilst by almost everybody's standards, Mashiri is a wealthy man, He's perhaps not quite that wealthy that he he can invest and he has the liquidity to invest that amount of cash because most people, even ultra high, high net worth individuals, their wealth is tied up in assets. It's tied up in businesses. It's tied up in property. It's tied up in investments that that they own. It's not normally sitting in a bank account in on on, on deposit, particularly at times like this where you don't earn any interest on, on, on deposit accounts. So it, it's it's difficult to see that Mishiri can continue to just keep pouring money in. At some point, he is going to have to say to to Brands and he's going to have to say to Angelotti, we need to get rid of players before we actually start buying. Now, they're never going to admit that publicly because obviously from a, a negotiating perspective, that's a that's a terrible thing to admit because everybody knows that you're effectively a false seller um, and your market prices would, would, would reflect that. But that's effect effectively the situation. If we sell players, and we can have a discussion about who, who those players should be, then it makes the situation easier for Mishiri and it makes the situation easier for the club. Mm. Jack, just touching on what Paul's just said, and he, he broke it down excellently for us. So looking at the possibilities, we you know you increase the borrowings or it's even further funding from Mashiri. But the other side of it, and what Paul's just spoke about there, is, is Marcel Brandy's job. Uh, a sale of players, obviously the likes of Theo Walcott, Yannick Balassi, Mo Besic and, and Pennington have left the club now as free agents. So that's reduced the wage bill, which is obviously very, very welcome. The club receives no compensation from their next clubs and, and so on. So... How important is it now for Everton to maybe look at offloading the likes of Bernard, John Joe Kenny, Cenk Tosin, Fabian Delft to maybe relieve some of the pressure on our wage bill? 
it, it's important, of course it is. Um, <clears throat> but they've they've tried to do this in previous transfer windows. They've tried to get rid of Bernard. I know Roma were interested. Tosin's been out on loan, um, and we haven't been able to get him out the door permanently. I think what what worries me a little bit about the transfer policy and brands is when brands joined, I felt that there was a, a clear plan, which was to get rid of the deadwood and bring players in that we could potentially nurture, improve, and then sell on for you know a, a huge profit. I think since Carlo's come to the club, if we take out the Ben Godfrey signing, the signings that he's made are more for the here and now and for immediate impact. We're not going to get the money back on a Decore or an Alan, for example. Ben Godfrey, we certainly would. And I'm, I'm not saying for one moment that I want to sell Ben Godfrey. Of course I don't. Um, but I think that's the model that Brands has got to go back to. And I, I know this is all about Everton, but I, I, you know, I, I look at what Leicester do and the players that they bring in and then sell on for vastly inflated fees. You know, you, you look at Harry Maguire, you look at Ben Chilwell, you look at Kante. You know, I know their scouting has been superb over the last few years, but they're still doing it now. You know, I look at Yuri Thielmans. They paid a lot of money for him, but they'll get huge money back for him. And, and Leicester will sell. They will. James Justin, I think they picked him up from Luton for, for peanuts. And again, if, if, it, if it comes to the point where they sell him, they'll get huge money for him again. And that's what brand is going to have to go back to. We can't do that. We can't keep doing this. We're going to buy 25, 30 million pound players who are in their 27s, 28 sort of age range. And we're not going to get anything back for them. There's not many clubs in world football who can sustain that type of transfer policy. Paul, do you agree with that? Do you think Marcel Brands probably has to go back to that remit? I know it's not ideal and I know some fans probably won't like hearing it that obviously we're going to be signing younger players, nurturing them and then selling them for profit. But ultimately, it is a good structure to have, isn't it? It is and it's it's the only way of sustainably investing in in your first team squad. I think, I think Carlo took the view uh, 12 months ago he he had to be very pragmatic um, this season, and he had to buy players that would hopefully have an instant impact on what he probably thought was a fairly weak squad. And it's clear that the objective from the, from the board was that we should uh, qualify for for Europe. That was that was the objective. Although that was not said early in the season, it was said a bit later when it be, when it looked like we might possibly do it. Um, and of course, the reason for wanting to qualify for Europe is that it generates significantly more income um, for for the club, and I, I think we're going to talk about that in, in, in a few minutes. Um, and therefore, he, sp- he he spent accordingly. So he he bought players that he thought would have an instant impact that wouldn't need a huge period of time to bed themselves in players that have done things in their careers elsewhere, with the view that they'd be able to do something similar. Everton now 
if we'd beaten Fulham and beaten Sheffield United at home, we wouldn't be having this conversation because we would have qualified for the Europa League. And in a sense, we would have met our objective. Uh, but the fact is, obviously, that we didn't. And therefore, the impact of that is quite significant next year. Um, the question is now whether or not Angelotti is able to convince the board, convince Marcel Brands, and probably convince Mashiri uh, that he continues the strategy of buying players that uh, have, have already had a career. Uh, and he's bringing in that, that experience and that knowledge and that know-how and that possibly winning mentality, although wasn't very evident this year, um, by, by buying older players. And in a sense, he's going to have to make the same gamble again because will Angelotti believe that by bringing in younger players as against bringing in older players, will that increase our chances of qualifying for Europe in season 22-23? Because that's ultimately what, it, what, what the club will now be looking at. The club will be having the same conversation that they had 12 months ago about the next 12 months. Mm-hmm. Because it's 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 critical uh, that we get into Europe. It's critical for from a financial point of view. It's obviously critical from a footballing point of view. And if we're actually going to grow the business and attract better quality commercial partners, bigger revenues, we have to have the visibility that European football brings us. Um, and without that, it's almost impossible to see how, how we achieve it. So it's a really, it's a really interesting um, argument as to whether or not Angelotti does what he what he did last year, or whether Brands says no. I, I, my my job is to look after the long term interests of the club, and I believe the long term interests of the club are best served by buying younger players that have a future sales value. Um, who who wins that argument? Uh, I'm not sure. I suspect Mashiri will follow Angelotti, but obviously that's just a, that's just an opinion. Ben, what are your thoughts on this? Um, do you know what the lads have done brilliantly there? Uh, Paul, Jack, Chris, some top top answers. Now, my role now is obviously just try and break this down for some of our listeners because it's really, really, really good intel and it's hard to understand what's going on. But I've been reading, obviously, Paul's uh, articles and some articles online and in relation to this £100 million that's getting spouted about, just to, to break it down um, for people listening who basically want a summary. So the three options we've got, obviously, increasing our borrowings, um, which the lads have rightly touched on there, but investment companies looking in sometimes frown upon that, um, what they will say, and then they'll see us as a bit of a capital risk so it's a potential red flag for new investors, especially for Bramley Moore Dock for the ground. So that's the first option. The second one, um, which obviously Paul uh, and Jack have touched on, is obviously the sale of players. Uh, now, we'll, it's it's no secret that the likes of Moise Keane, they're up for grabs this summer. Now, you look at his potential market value, then it's going to be towards the £40 million mark. And we're still missing £60 million. It's £100 million. Um, war chess as the media like to call it so it's still a sure for but you've got other players um, who are up, and up for grabs Richarlison said last summer potentially that he's going to give a 12 more months to see where we're up to as a football club and decide is he the asset to go I would 
I don't want him to leave Everton Football Club. I know he hasn't had his, his best season, but he is an asset. He's one of the players at our club that can potentially get you 70, 80 million pounds. He's young, he's athletic. He'll push on, he'll score goals, he'll play anywhere for you. So it's, again, but who's got that money post-COVID? That's another question you've got to ask yourselves. And I know Jack touched on it then. We've got players running out of contract. Josh King, um, he's obviously leaving the club. Mo Bessic has finally gone. Uh, Olsen's loans come to an end. Yannick Balassi, Theo Wolcott, Pennington, he's been here for years. So these are all leaving, which is brilliant for the club, but we've got no money for them. We've got no compensation. We've got nothing. All that is, is just money off the books, which is a positive. But you look at the Yannick Balassi deal, spending £30 million now or thereabouts on a player and putting them on 80 grand a week for four or five-year contract. We've, so we've lost probably, in essence, £50, £60 million on that deal over the course of five years, which as a business term is a very, very, very bad deal. And there's been one too many of them going forward. So that second uh, idea of selling the players is an, is an option for Everton. Um, and obviously we've got the likes of Moise Keane, as I've touched on, Bernard, um, John Joe Kenny, uh, I believe Andre Gomez is up in the market as well, but apparently there's only shooters in Spain coming in who want to take Andre Gomez on loan. Um, it's my understanding Alex Awobi has also been placed up for sale, but again, who comes in with a 15, 20 million pound bid for him? I know the likes of Crystal Palace have had serious injuries with Eze and other players and could they be potential shooters? But these they're all starting to, uh, post-COVID, no clubs are going to really have much revenue. So it is going to, once again, be a massive task for Marcel Brands to raise his £100 million with, with sales from players and reduce wage bill, which is going to be difficult. And obviously the third one, which Paul rightly touched on, is the further funder from Mashiri. And the £100 million uh, injected cash boost from Mashiri might be, um, a really another red flag for me. Um, obviously, they've got 33,333 shares priced at 3,000 each, but it's my understanding um, and I think that's potentially, potentially be used for his contribution towards Bramley Moore Dock. I, I think your, your article read, Paul. Yep. So, yep. yeah, so there, there you have it. There are your three options, Blues. It's, it's, it's really open. It's really difficult. And whichever way we go about it, we all know we need to, we need to invest in players. We're struggling on the pitch, but how we do it, I don't know. How it affects us long-term, I don't know. The boys here were going to explain it a lot better than I do, but I'm trying to break it down for for you to listen in. Did, so it is going to be difficult. It is going to be met with probably a few red flags in the Premier League as well, but mm. if they're not going to punish the Super Six or the big six, as they like to call themselves, then do you know what? They, they can't come knocking on our door trying to find us as they literally try to destroy the world of football. So... It's one of them for me, Mick. The, the, diff, the difficulty uh, the brands faces with the players that you've mentioned that we'd like to get rid of or, mo or move on, to be more polite, is that they're never, ever going to get the same contracts elsewhere uh, as they've got at Everton. Uh, one, because we've been extraordinarily generous in the last three or four years when we've had mysterious money to spend. Two, uh, those players... Uh, so trajectories are probably on the way down as against on the on the way up. So, you know, is Gomez a more attractive proposition today than he was two years ago? Obviously, the injury plays a big part in that, but frankly, he's not because he's not the same footballer than, than as as he was. And thirdly, the economic environment in which we're trying to sell these players, the the, the potential buyers don't have the same amount of cash that they would have had two years ago. So. 
it's extraordinarily difficult to see how a, a player like Gomez, for example, or Awobi, who's probably an even greater example of this, um, can move even on the same terms that they're on currently at Everton. And, you know, any of us, if we wanted to move from one employer to another, we're likely only ever to want to move if we're going to get paid more, let alone be paid the same amount. Occasionally that might happen because there might be a better employer, etc. But that's the problem that, that, that Brands has. So how, how do you get around that problem? How do you get around the problem that the players themselves are not going to be paid the same amount of money somewhere else as they're currently being paid at Everton? Well, there's a couple of things that we can do. We can uh, we can pay the players. So whatever the difference is in terms of the contract that's offered to them and the contract that they've got at Everton, uh, we can we can make good that difference. That's a that's a possibility. Or the other way that we can do it, and effectively it's the same thing, but the other way of doing it is we allow them to go for less money. So if a player if Awobi is worth 15 million now, do we let him go for 10? And then that difference, the, the 5 million difference that the, the buying club uses that um, saving to pay Awobi whatever he's currently being paid on, on his contract with Everton. So it, it is, it is possible, but um, there's an expression, somebody has to take a haircut somewhere. Mm. Um, and it's us because we're we're the people that hold all the liabilities sit with us, sit with Everton. And if we're gonna get players to move on, well, first of all, those players know that we really need them to leave, so they're gonna push for the you know for, for the greatest possible terms, even if they find a, a, a possible purchaser. So it's gonna be who, however we, which way we get rid of these players. It's going to be expensive for us, but ultimately, it's something that we have to do. We we will we will save money over the periods of the contract, whatever periods of the contracts are, are left, but not immediately. So th- th- there's a there's a short term cost, there's a short term hit uh, to getting rid of these players, and I suspect in the past we've been reluctant to do that, um, but now. This, you know, we're into the second full season of a post-COVID environment, um, and our finances are in a worse position. And Angelotti is probably being more forceful with the board in terms of what he wants to bring in. As against, you know, I can imagine who's going to present the, the stronger the stronger case to the board in terms of bringing players in: Marco Silva or Carlo Angelotti. Angelotti clearly is going to present the stronger case. Um, so the club is in a position where, in order to satisfy the Angelotti case, whatever that might be, um, they have to do something that perhaps 12 months ago they wouldn't have been prepared to do or two years ago they wouldn't have been prepared to do. So if we're going to move these players on, we're going to take a short-term hit, which, again, doesn't look great in the accounts. But as long as there's a, a longer-term benefit, and that benefit is saving money long-term, but also, most importantly, from a footballing perspective, giving us the space to bring in the players that the manager wants, then then that's what we're going to have to do. Jack, Chris, I'm going to come to you, Pair, next. And Jack, I'll come to you first. Just touching on what Paul and Ben have just spoke about it. 
from the outside looking in, it seems like Everton are in between a rock and a hard place. You know, they're in a, a tricky position in the league, and especially going into next year. You think, you know what, Everton do need to strengthen in certain areas, but are we able to? Where are we going to find the money? We've got to get rid of players. So are you happy, Jack, with, you know, maybe Carlo gambling again with ready-made players and probably not sticking to probably Marso Brands' remit? Um. I don't. I don't think it's whether or not I'm happy. I think when you appoint a manager like Ancelotti, you you don't tell him what the transfer strategy is, and you know he he comes in with his own ideas, and and that's one of the potential problems with appointing a manager of such um, presence and standing in the game. Um, just like Paul said, if if Marco Silva was in charge or Roberto Martinez, I think it's a lot easier for the board to say, this is the strategy and this is what we're going with. Um, and we're, we're buying young and, and we're selling on for hugely inflated prices. But when you appoint a manager like Ancelotti, you know, he's got such a wealth of experience and he's been hugely successful. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's his way or the highway here, but I think... He'll have a, a vision and he'll have an idea of what he wants to do in the summer. And he'll expect that to happen. He's Carlo Ancelotti. You know, we Everton Football Club pay him a huge amount of money each year to get it right. And if you look at Ancelotti, um, especially in, in sort of more recently in his stints at Bayern Munich and Chelsea, um, he, he hasn't really got a history of, of buying young and, and developing them. Um, and, and if I, what I read, if, if what I believe, uh, what I read, um, you know, the Ben Godfrey signing was not an Ancelotti signing. Um, and that didn't fit the other signings, did it? If we look at the summer, Decore, Allen and Rodriguez. So I don't think it's about am I happy? I think, it, I think it's something we've probably got to expect to happen. Chris, where do you sit with this? I think as a club, we're probably, we're now at the point where we, we're paying the price for the mismanagement, um, both from a director of football level and from a management perspective that we've witnessed probably since um, Mashiri took over the club, to be fair. I think, you know, many fans, we can all look at that squad and say it's disjointed. Um, there's not enough depth in certain areas. There's too many similar players. And, that pro- therein lies the problem with realistically outside of the top of the so-called big six. In fact, probably even on a par with the likes of Spurs, we we do pay the best salaries. And therein lies your problem trying to move any of them on. The, the, as Paul's touched on previously, we, we're we not going to move those players on because no one is going to be willing to pay them the kind of money they're getting paid at Everton Football Club. So I'm just going to throw something out there and, and Jack, I'm going to come back to you first. So going through all the possibilities and, and the, the whereabouts of money here and there, if a big bid comes in for, say, Richarlison at 60, 70 million, what would you expect Everton Football Club to do? Um, I think I think they'd say no. I think we, I think we might get a bit of uh, negativity from the fans. Um and you get that view of being a selling club sort of thing. Me personally, 60, 70 million for a Charleston. I know Ben has said he, he loves him and he doesn't want him to go. Um, 
I think personally Everton would be relatively fortunate to get 60, 70 million for him. And goes back to what Paul said, I think 18 months ago, Everton would have got that money. But I think post-COVID, you know, you've only got to look at Harry Kane. Now, I know he's going to go for more than that, but you can count on one hand the clubs that can afford to buy him. Um, I, think, I think the board would have to consider it. I think they would, um, but I don't think they would sell the Charles. There's, there's, sorry, just to cut in, there's an interesting little thing in terms of affordability. Um, you're probably aware that UEFA are currently negotiating a, an enormous loan around about anywhere between five and six billion euros, which they propose to give, having, having arranged the loan, they then propose to lend that money uh, to the regular participants in European football. Uh, and the reason for doing that is they can see this massive deflationary bubble that's appearing because of, of a lack of cash, a lack of liquidity. Um, and in, in every man, every day man's terms, that means they can see prices falling and that would be disastrous for most football clubs if the, because the primary assets of a football club are actually the players. And if those, if those asset values fell significantly, um, it might push some very big clubs right over the edge. And, and you know, many of those clubs, we know the situation in Barcelona, for example, many of those, and Real Madrid similarly, many of those big European clubs are in difficult financial circumstances as it is. And to see uh, the value of footballers, their primary asset falling even further, as a result of there not being enough cash to buy those players, enough cash to have activity in the transfer market, just the same as like it is in the housing market any, any, anywhere in the world. There's two elements, there's price and there's volume. If, if the price falls and the volume falls, then football has a really big problem. And UEFA are desperate for that problem uh, not to arrive on their shores which is why they're, they're arranging these enormous loans that the largest clubs can, can dip into. And then those clubs will then pay those loans back over maybe five or 10 years out of the future European uh, revenues. If that is the case, and I believe that that will be the case uh, before the end of the summer, before the end of this window, otherwise there's hardly any point in doing it. Actually, there will be... A, a far greater number of clubs that would pick up a Richarlison than you might think today. Because if they get the, this lending from UEFA, then they, they will spend they will spend that money on players. They're not they're not just going to put the money in the bank. They're going to do what all football clubs do. You know, what Alan Sugar talks about in terms of prune juice, they're going to spend it. Um so in one sense we might wish as Evertonians, even though we're not going to be participants in this because we're not obviously in European football, we might hope that UEFA is, is successful in uh, creating, you know, getting this loan and then putting that money into football because if it puts the money into football, then it's much easier for us to sell a player like Richarlison than it would be if they don't. And this actually leads me on to our, our next topic, guys, which we've had a lot of emails in regards to Everton's failure in making Europa League, let alone Champions League, which was obviously spoken about during the season. Jack, Everton missing out on Champions League, especially in Europa League. How does that affect Everton's finances? Um, hugely. 
in, in a word. Um, I think we all know that the Champions League is the um, where, where, where the main money is. Um, UEFA, UEFA put about two billion pound, two billion euros a year into the Champions League. Uh, we know that every club that qualifies for the Champions League um, immediately are given around about fifteen million pounds or, or euros. Um, but the, the finances and the you know the, the the prize of getting into the Champions League obviously doesn't stop there. Um, you know, if if you win a group match, you know, a lot, lot of people probably aren't aware, but if you win a group match in the Champions League, you you, you pick up two and a half million pounds, give or take. For every draw in the group stage, it's just under a million. So when you start totaling that up, you know, if you have these clubs that can, you know, win all their six group games. Well, you're looking at sort of you know, around about fifteen million pounds for winning your six group games on top of your fifteen million pounds for qualifying. So you're already at thirty million, and then it really ramps up. You know, last sixteen quarterfinals, semi-finals, and the final. Now. Chelsea and Man City obviously have made the finals. That they've made a huge amount of money this year. You know, it's reported that Chelsea have currently made about 105 million euros for making the final. Man City slightly lower, which I'll come on to in a minute. Reasons why, um, but the winners actually will only get about another four million extra. So, in terms of the money available to win the Champions League once you've got to the final, it's not a huge amount more. The reason why. Chelsea are getting more money than Man City. A, could be because they've obviously done slightly better in the group stage. But a lot of it comes down to the club coefficient rankings. And I'm not too sure how, how familiar we are with it, but each club in Europe is given a, a coefficient and it's based on a 10-year period of their performance in European competitions. And you know, no one's going to be surprised that Real Madrid are at the top of that list. Because um, if you think back over the last decade, they've won sort of, what, four Champions Leagues? They are given about £30 million, £32 million a year because they are, in effect, the highest-ranked team in the Champions League. Uh, then Bayern Munich, Barcelona, and, and it, the list goes down. And, and Chelsea are actually currently the highest-ranked uh, English club. So on top of the money that they've made from qualifying, winning games, getting to the final, they've been given around about 27, 28 million pounds. Now that coefficient is or grows over time. And this is when when I hear people say, oh, I don't want European football for Everton this year. We're not, we're not ready for it. Everton have got to qualify for European football as soon as they can because They've got to build this coefficient. They, they've absolutely got to, you know. And it, it, it works exactly the same for the Europa League. Obviously, the Europa League is, you know, sort of you know, the poor relation compared to the Champions League. And, and UEFA distributes around about 500 million. So if you compare the Champions League, 2 billion, 500 million for the Europa League. So it's a lot less, but it's the same principle. You get an amount of money for winning games in the group. It's obviously a lot less. So in the Europa League, it's around about half a million for winning a group game. Um, and we've seen recently, obviously, last night, Man United and Villarreal. Uh, you get about four and a half million for making the final, but on top of making the semi-final and the quarter-final. But Arsenal were the highest ranked team in the Europa League this year. 
um, and, and they were given around about three million euros, three million pounds, because of their coefficient. So, you know, it, I, I, I really struggle with Everton fans who say we're not ready for European football because the gap between the clubs that are qualifying for Europe in the Premier League and Everton is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the, the, the six clubs who qualified in through the, the Premier League last year. So you've got Man United, uh, was it seven clubs? Man United, Man City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs and Leicester. Between those seven clubs, there's been about 380 million divided between them. Well, going back onto what Paul said about generating money, those clubs are, are generating money. And, and this is every year, you remember. Right? Man United staggers me, got knocked out of the group stage in the Champions League. Still made over 60 million this year from Europe. And, it's, and a lot of it is down to their club coefficient because they are in Europe every single year. And they've been in Europe every single year for, you know, as long as I can remember. So not qualifying for Europe is, is having a huge impact on Everton's finances. And, and again, I'm sure Paul and the other guys will jump in. And it, it's not just a football in terms of getting the money from UEFA, but it, it opens you up to more sponsors, doesn't it? And more corporate sponsors. You're a more you know, attractive proposition if you're qualifying for Europe on a regular basis. Paul, is, is, that, is that what you think is going to happen? You think Everton are going to keep gambling for as long as they can to try and break this duck, get into Europe and then stay in Europe? Yeah, I do, actually. I think um, a lot of people talk about, you know, what championship clubs do in order to try and get into the Premier League. That you know, If, you, if you're first in, in the championship, you earn £6 million worth of TV revenue. If you're 22nd in the Premier League, you earn £90 million worth of um, TV revenue. And how championship clubs massively overspend in the hope that they're going to you know, win the jackpot by getting into the Premier League. And in a sense, the same thing happens at the top of the Premier League in terms of getting into the Champions League or getting, getting in, into... Um, Europa and now also obviously the conference although the your uh, the, the conference yet the prize monies ha- haven't been haven't been announced and they're going to be obviously fairly insignificant compared to the Champions League and, and the Europa but yeah so you're in a position where the clubs that are clubs like Everton who are around and about uh, qualifying for the Europa forget forget the Champions League for, for, for a minute we're effect- we've been doing effectively what champ- championship clubs do. We've been spending money in the hope that that money would get us those higher revenues in the future. Problem we've had is that we've failed to do it on the pitch. So we've spent like a we've spent like a club that's expected to be in the Champions League, but we because we haven't, we ha- we miss out on those enormous revenues, and that's eff- effectively the problem that we've got. If we qualified. We wouldn't have a problem because we'd have the revenues. We have a problem because we didn't qualify and we don't have the revenues. And it, and it, it is really quite as simple as that, that our on-pitch performance, be it because we've not had the right manager, be it because we've not had the right players, be it because for whatever reason they've not performed on the pitch. Ultimately, it comes comes down to that. You, you can, we, and, you know, 
I, I could earn a living um, criticising Everton, Everton Football Club and the board. I talk about it so often. Actually, whilst I still believe in all the criticisms that I uh, give them, it comes down to what happens on the pitch. And, and if we qualify regularly for European football, then much of, many of our financial problems disappear. That's ultimately where, where we're at. The problem is, is if every year that you don't qualify for Europe, but you spend as if you're going to qualify for Europe, the problem just gets bigger and bigger. And also, I think, you know, purely from a footballing perspective, the longer you don't qualify, but you're still paying wages as, as if you would qualify, you start to attract the wrong type of players because you might now start to attract the players that are actually more interested in the money than they are in actually playing in European football. Mm. And those that really want to play in European football and really want to be Champions League winners or Europa League winners, they go and join a club that they think are more likely to win on the pitch. It's it's strange, isn't it, Chris? You know, putting my fan head on and just speaking as a match going blue, you almost feel like the walls are closing in on this football club a little bit here. And you almost feel... If Carlo Ancelotti, Marcel Brands, Farhad Mashir, if they don't get it right over maybe the next season or two, you almost feel like something bad's going to happen, don't you? Yeah, if we're going to if we're going to spend to the level we have done previously, and probably more importantly, offer the kind of salaries we, and the length of contracts we have done previously, they they absolutely have to get it right. You can't continue to operate with this model forever without, as you say, qualifying for the European tournaments and, and the additional revenues that come both the direct revenues that Jack touched on there and the indirect um, commercial opportunities that come with that. I, I do think, um, yeah, as a sort of match going blue, you look at it and over the last, certainly pre-Angelotti, you look, you'd, I'd say the recruitment's probably been lazy in a certain, um, to a certain degree. I mean, players like the likes of Alex Awobi, uh, they're coming in out of, you know, the sort of one, sort of top, so-called top six fringe players that, realistically haven't been good enough Theo Walcott's another to have haven't done it like Walcott played in the Premier League for what, 10 years before he signed for Everton and hadn't done it on a consistent basis you know he was no better when he signed for us than he was at 16 when he first burst on the scene there's got to be players which we could employ which have got higher ceilings sort of more potential to kick on and say we spoke about before we looked at the Leicester model there's, play, there's got to be players in other divisions and the championship for that matter. And, and you know, they already play in England. I mean, Ollie Watkins has done particularly well at Villa this season. Um, Eze at Palace, I know he's had a bad injury. But there has to be, a, I think, a more proactive approach to recruitment. And hopefully this summer with probably the first summer we've gone into in a little while since Martinez's first season, we've got settlement from a management perspective. Um, we should be more proactive in the market, one would hope. And Ben, this brings us to our last topic of this evening. It's the transfer spend for this summer. So given what's all been spoken about, what Paul, Jack, Chris, yourself and myself have spoke about, it's a massive summer, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I completely agree with the models that the lads are talking about there. We, I don't think we could afford to go for the players that we have done over the past couple of windows where you've not really got a sell on value for the likes of Alain, Decore and pretend to buy them when they hit the top of the roller coaster and they're looking down on the Pepsi Max in Blackpool and they're starting to about to go. So we're not going to make our money back on them 
Um, they were ball probably in the attempt to do a bit of a quick fix. Sort out the midfield now, not in two years' time. Obviously, with money we've spent, we probably did do a bit of a gamble, saying, you know, we've got to get European football, and we haven't this year. So that's a bit of a failure for me this year. Um, so we've got to get young, athletic players who are going to be direct, fast, play for the share, not just coming here for a, a, a loan and not coming here for some money in the back pocket. So some players have been for a bit of a, a bank booster, shall we say. We need players that are going to be hungry to play for Everton Football Club and get us higher up the pitch because we're very, very deep at the moment. And I've got some names down here um, and I'm trying to base it around not spending over the top. Um, obviously, the free positions that they want to get done as soon as possible as a goalkeeper, a right back and right wing, which we've all spoken about over numerous podcasts because the whole right-hand side has stunk for a long time. You look at Olsen's loan as that come to an end. Um, so I believe that Roma's sporting director wants him back at Everton. Obviously, we're not going to want to pay the £5-7 million fee with the quote and, and there's talks of another loan. Uh, obviously, we have a small loan fee again, which potentially does make sense. Or you've got the Manchester United cup keeper, shall we say, uh, Sergio Romero, or the three. Uh, his contract's up at Man United. We were quoted £8 million last summer for him, which we chose not to do, probably because we are quite cash-struck. Um, and he's now a free agent and believe that there is contact with him from ourselves. Uh, and, and However, an Italian club are interested as well. But he was on, again, 70 grand a week for at United over the past few years. So if we can get my pick out of them two probably be Sergio Romero on the free. Uh, no loan fee. Hopefully getting him in on a, a low salary in for the season. Uh, and he would probably be a really good backup for Jordan Pickford going forward. So I think he's one to watch. Um, obviously the right back. We obviously, we've been to Norwich. They've asked for £30 million and we've just been, no, we're not paying this. So your Max Owens is probably out the window at this moment in time. I don't think that's going to happen at all. So I'm not even really going to touch on him. Uh, you've got Riddle Baku from Wolfsburg. He's played 32 times this year, 23 years of age. Absolutely lightning quick. Uh, six goals, six assists this year. He's more of a right-back, right-wing-back player. Um, his going rate at the moment has been £18 and £20 million. Pounds. Now, he would probably fit the bill if we're going to play either a 3-5-2, 4-3-3 or 4-4-2 because he's, he's rapid. Really athletic young man. 23 years of age. Again, it's that, that, that age, that profile that actually fits what myself and probably a lot of Evertonians listening want, young, hungry, quick, athletic players who will have a sell-on value in the future. So I believe his, his going rate between 18 and £20 million. Pounds. Um, you've got Silic, who plays for Lille in France. 24-year-old uh, right back that we were linked with him last summer, um, but we got we didn't really know his, his ceiling level. We were unsure if we could we give another year in France. He's played 29 times this year, three goals, two assists. And clearly they've played well because they've, they've won the league this year, Lil. But as we all know, France are going through a really tough time at the moment with TV rights. And I know Jack touched on the Leicester model before where they sell to buy. And you look at, they just got a, an unbelievable deal signing Sumari from uh, Lille for such a low fee because he's going to be some player and he still holds a real value going forward into the future. So Silic for me, 24 years of age, and he's going like, I think we could potentially get it for £15 million. He would be a player who would probably fit the model, fit the bill again, and would still have a sell-on sell on fee. Which brings me on to the right winger. Um, now again, we all 
are screaming out for pace as Evertonians. We want players that are going to come to our club and excite us. Um, now, you, the obvious one was Leon Bailey, who we had the chance to sign last year and we chose not to. Um, so we had a, an extra season in Germany and he's performed brilliantly this year. Obviously, he's now 23 years of age, nine goals, eight assists. And his market value has probably gone through the roof, but we have been scouting throughout the season and watching Leon Bailey, which has brought us on to my next target, Moussa Diaby, um, who's the other winger for Bayern Leverkusen. Now, I don't think we went to look at Diaby, but based on his performances, he scored four times and assisted 10 times, and he's only a 21-year-old winger. He, again, electric, electrifying pace, should I say. These are the players that we need to bring in for the model that we want to develop at Everton Football Club because these players are going to want to come and prove themselves in the Premier League, probably arguably the best league in the world um, for any young footballer aspiring to be. And we probably would get a, a selling value with these players. Now, you will probably pay a bit of a premium at the moment due to their age. Um, so we probably will be looking between the 35 and £40 million pound mark. But another player that's been thrown in the mix is Callum hudson Doy. Now, there was murmurs of a potential loan deal for Hudson-Odoi, which would probably benefit all parties. We get a decent winger of a young age who can just come and perform, and but we're not going to ship on any purchase fees or any transfer fees, and hopefully we can try and split his wages. So him on a loan and another potential fast winger would potentially sort our attack and threat going forward in the hope potentially Alex Awobi finds a new club. Um, for me, he's not going to cut it at Everton. It's sad to see. I fought his corner for so long, but for me, I don't think he's going to go any further for Everton. Then, you, again, the, probably the fourth position is the centre-half. Um, we've obviously looked at Damaro from Juventus, 23-year-old centre-back, who did, however, have a bit of a serious injury. So he's only played 15 times this year. Uh, no goals, one assist, but they're probably looking for £20 million pounds again. Uh, and Ronald Arrojo from Barcelona, 22-year-old centre-half, um, played 24 times this year, scored twice and assisted once. Unknown what Barcelona want for him. Obviously, we're all aware of their financial implications at the moment. But these are the type of calibre of players that we need to be looking at. Um, our scouts are doing the work here and far. And we need to start picking up the next big thing. We can't look to buy, for example, Philip Coutinho for 40, 50 million, a player that's had two knees in the past year. We can't go down that model anymore because as Paul, Jack, Chris has all touched on, the money's starting to get tight and we really need to have some saleable assets in the future to find the next generation of footballers going forward. So if we can get address a model that's going to work for the future, hopefully we can guarantee European Champions League football and use these type of plays. You pay a bit of a premium, but in four or five years' time, they're going to be literally at the top of that roller coaster like I spoke about earlier and we're going to get big transfer fees for them and people are going to come in and say he's going to perform well for three, four, five years time at the top level club so yeah they're the players they've got in mind I know Evertonians want five, six, seven, eight players going forward I want them to I'm desperate for them I'm desperate for success is it sustainable and is it realistic? no I think you're going to be your three, four players in this window and probably them positions with the likes of Yadimina he's up in the market he's got two years left on his contract what do we do with him do we sign him on for another extended contract on 120 130 grand a year or do we look to cash in now that's again we've put it out to Evertonians before and it's a heat of a debate but it's going to be a really really interesting summer as Paul and the lads have rightly said it's going to be a really big task for Marcel Brands this summer because it's not just getting players in through the door at Everton it's getting the players out 
It's interesting, isn't it, Jack, just touching on what Ben's just said and, and regarding all the players that he's just mentioned. It feels like we're doing a full circle here on the podcast tonight. A lot of those players are 22, 23, maybe 24, and they're maybe just starting to climb that ladder to get to their peak. Is, do you think Marcel Brands personally is probably wanting to go down that route, but it, it almost might stall Everton's progression over the next year or two? I think I think that was what Brands was brought in for, was to scout across Europe and across the world and find those players that are sort of two, three, four years away from their peak and we take a little bit of a punt on them and I think Ben summarised some of those players brilliantly there and I think we are going to have to look at some of those players for 25, 30 million in the hope of developing them and then if a bigger club with more money comes calling we know we can you know, make money back. I think I think what concerns me a little bit is, and I don't know how the rest of the guys feel, is there doesn't seem to be anything coming through the academy. And I know you can probably look at a lot of clubs in the Premier League um, and, and the lack of academy graduates coming through. But I, I you know, I, I hear a lot of a lot of positive positive things about Everton um, and the under 18s but I'm not seeing anyone coming through and making that breakthrough. And and that's another way, obviously, of making money is developing your academy and your youth and bringing them through the ranks and then selling them on. And Everton don't seem to be bringing anybody through, really, which does concern me. Paul, just touching on on the academy and the, the youth system, you know, you look over at the continent and, Clubs like Ajax have, have almost got it down to a T. Where are Everton with this? Are Everton still taking the academy and the youth system very, very seriously? Well, I think given the nature of this podcast is like the boardroom, the discussion I would want to have if I was uh, Mashiri, if I was Bill Kenwright, if I was Denise Barrett-Baxendale, is we're investing whatever the amount of resources is into the academy, what are we getting back from it? Because for to me, there should only be one single objective um, from from any any academy. In fact, from anybody within the organisation, if you if you're not contributing to the success of the first team, what are you doing uh, being employed in this organisation? Because ultimately, that's that's all that matters. All that matters is that the first team is as successful as it possibly can be. And and okay, you can you can have the discussion that, you know, as as an employer, which Everton Football Club is, and it employs you know, young young men to become professional footballers, we have a like a, a moral obligation to 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 see uh, to see them right, you know, to to help them develop their careers and everything else. Get that totally. But ultimately a football club is about what happens on on the pitch in terms of the first team. And if it was me, if it was me sitting in the boardroom, if it was me speaking to David Dunsworth, I would say to him, that's your responsibility, pal. We're investing X million pound a year in in a division of the company that you run. And from that, we expect, uh, let's say, two players every every three years that are going to break through into the first team. And perhaps another two or three players that we can sell to somebody else um, at a reasonable profit. 
And if you're not doing that, then you have to ask, first of all, are you the right person to be doing the job? And secondly, should we be making the investment that we're making in your division of the business? And if we're not, if we're not asking those questions, then what the hell are we doing? We're not acting like a proper business. And I, and it, it, it is as, to me, it's as cutthroat as that. We can have the moral argument about is it, is it right to take, you know, very young kids and to like focus them entirely on becoming professional footballers in the knowledge that very few of them actually will become professional footballers. But that's a that's a much bigger discussion for football as a whole, which I think actually football probably should have. Um, and in fact, professional sports should have. Uh, but that's ultimately what, what the academy is about. It's not about winning uh, Premier League 2. It's not about winning FA Cup 2. All of that is nonsense. I mean, it, it's okay. It's it's, it's it's great that they're in, in a competition and it's great that they win something. It's great for them individually to experience it. But actually, that's not what it's about. It's, that's the football club. Rather, the academy is about providing uh, talent either to our first team or to somebody else's first team. Nothing more. It's interesting, isn't it, Chris? I, I remember reading an article about Manchester United and um, I think Everton had beat them in a competition. I think it was the Premier League 2 and there was an article and the Manchester United coach was was pretty much saying the result is irrelevant. It's all about developing the players to further their careers into the first team or beyond uh, over the next few years. And he was almost very nonchalant about it, about the result. Do you, just touching on what Jack and, and Paul have just said about the academy, do you think Everton are maybe failing a little bit now, not putting enough pressure on the likes of David Unsworth and alike, yeah, I so I would agree with that point. I think I so say you've got two, probably two objectives for your academy. You're either looking at developing players that you can move on for a profit, which can continue to fund activities within the first team, or you're looking for players to outright break through. Um, I believe I'm right in saying we had obviously Ellis Sims, who's you know ripped it up at pretty much every age group level. You know, scores every week. Uh, I believe he's the same age as Mason Greenwood. I quote, um, please tell me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe he's come through the same age group sort of games as Mason Greenwood. I believe he has, yes. Um, you know, Greenwood, you look at Greenwood now, he started the Europa League final last night. There needs to be, I think, more push towards getting these players out, getting them in and around the first team, as City have done with Phil Foden. I know he's absolutely exceptional, but he, you know, he's got involved with that City first team at a young age and he's, he's now an integral part of the first team squad or getting them out in meaningful loans. I mean, so I'd use the example of Ellis Sims. He's, he's a big lad and he's, he seems to be in the business now for Blackpool. You know, is he 20 now? You, yes, he's three months older than uh, Mason Yeah, Greenwood. exactly. You'd hope. I mean, he's a pretty well-developed lad as well. You know, he's he's tall, broad fella. You'd hope he'd now be in a position where he could come in, he'd be providing some competition for like Calvert-Lewin, um, pressing on there, or failing that, he's moving on for five, ten million top of the championship, you know, clubs coming up into the Premier League and and benefiting the club in that manner. I think there's there's too much credit given, um, in my opinion, to the job Unsworth does with the under-23s around winning the likes of the Premier League too, when, as you say, you'd... you'd um, you guy in charge at Man United there saying it, it, it's a, it's irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. And there we have it guys. But before we go, I must ask the question as we will get a plenty of emails asking us, Paul, I'm going to throw you in first and ask you the question. 
How much are you expecting Everton to spend before sales? Oh, a minimal. If, if we don't, if, if we don't sell anybody, a minimal amount, sort of twenty, thirty million pound. Because frankly, we don't have it. Ben. Yeah, I'd probably agree with Paul. Um, I think the sales would probably push us towards 40, 50, at best 60 million. Um, plus, it, I'd probably say 20 million on top of that. So, 80 million all in if you're going on the uh, the old net spend or whatever you, they call it nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have it, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to the first ever Bullings Boardroom with me, Mick Kemp, Ben Wynn Stanley. Jack Kemp, Paul the Esk, and our guest this evening was Chris Nicholson. It's been fantastic. It's been insightful. And I'm sure you've learned a lot just like myself. We will be back next month with the next episode from the Bullins Boardroom. In the meantime, we are doing a season review next week and you'll hear from us then. So stay safe, take care and all the very best. Thank you. been listening to the Bullins Boardroom, brought to you by A View from the Bullins, 